0: This morning we are returning to our study of the book of 1st John. So I'm going to ask you to open up your Bibles uh, to the letter of 1st John. And we're going to be just starting into um, the first verse of the third chapter. So 1st John chapter 3. Really just looking at verse 1 this morning. Would you please uh, join me in prayer. Our Lord, our God, we just want to exalt you this morning. Just as we have sung of your incredible and wondrous love, Lord. We just ask that you would put your, um, your love on display through the scriptures. We ask, Lord God, that you would just uh, work to help us understand these scriptures rightly and to uh, apply it to how we think about you. And Lord, may these uh, marvelous truths just have great bearing on the trajectory of our lives as we seek to, to serve you and, and live for you. Just work, Lord, through your word. Speak to us through the scriptures this morning and transform us through the, the very power and love with what we have just, uh, which we have just sung. Lord, we just thank you so much for your wondrous love. It's in the name of Christ, for his glory and for our good we ask this. Amen. Well, beloved, this morning we get to consider the, the grand topic of the love of God And not through the lens of the world as we see through the passage. The lens of the world would distort the love of God to accept a person just as he is. That the way that we love people and the way indeed that God loves people is kind of just as they are. Whatever kind of hang up or sins and our world doesn't even want to acknowledge those. Sometimes the church doesn't even want to acknowledge it. They, they, they say that God made them this way and to love somebody is just to accept them how they are. But we're going to see this morning that God's love doesn't do that. God doesn't love by accepting us how we are. God loves us by making us His children and completely conforming us to His image. In this little uh, parentheses in verses 1 to 3 that we're going to see in a moment, John is is going to bring us to a grand topic, one that should bring great encouragement to your soul if you are truly saved. It it gives us a glimpse of our future and and a present hope for the things that we are going through now, a present hope for righteousness. You see, God's plan is not to take us as we are, but to transform us into the image of Christ. John is providing his readers with a, with a glimpse of the hope of righteousness in the child of God, which provides assurance of salvation and confidence that one has genuine fellowship with God. Remember, that's a larger context. Assurance of salvation and, and knowing that you have genuine fellowship with God. Well, it's in that light that I'd like us to, to read through 1 John 3, verses 1 to 3. 1 John Chapter 3, and I'm in the wrong John. It helps if the pastor gets to the right passage. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be, We know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. Beloved, we're we're going to look at this hope of righteousness that John presents us. And and really, this this, uh, parentheses in verses 1 to 3... spring out of the last phrase of verse 29 where John talks about those who practice righteousness are born of him and it's this idea being born of him that causes John to reflect on this wondrous love of the father. Beloved, this morning what we're going to look at is really the first part of, of this parenthesis, if you will, in the love of God, is that our hope of righteousness is based solely upon God's wondrous love for us. We have no other hope of righteousness than God's wondrous love for us. John wants us to see how, what a wonderful gift God has given to us. And in order to do this, he he wants us to understand the necessity of righteousness. So I, I'm going to go back just a little bit to give us some of the context as to why John is, is at, at verse 1, why he's springboarding into the love of God from verse 29. You see, beloved, we're starting the, the second spiral. If you want to outline First John, it's a bit difficult. It doesn't go linear like we're used to doing in our Western world. John is a bit of a, bit of a spiral, so he's going to visit a topic teach us a little bit about it, and then he's going to revisit it using different terminology and then come back around and add to that. So we've begun, uh, if you want to do the outline, we've begun that that second spiral. And the second spiral is built upon the truth that we find in verse 29, that God is righteous. And John says in verse 29, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Well, the first thing I want us to consider is the necessity of righteousness. If we have hope of seeing God, if we have any hope of being in heaven with him and of rightly fellowshiping with him, we must realize that that he is righteous. And as such, he is perfectly holy. And he always does what is right. John says in, in chapter 1, verse 5, that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. That's the first spiral. That's the truth that the first spiral is built around. The truth that the second spiral is built around, related to that, is that He is righteous. He is righteous. And John's going to develop that whole idea, and he's going to apply it and show uh, us why sin cannot reside in the life of the believer, because God is righteous. But at this point, he's merely stating in verse 29 that he is righteous. Habakkuk 1.3 tells us that God cannot approve of or look at favor upon unrighteousness. Habakkuk says, your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. And that's why he's not going to take somebody as well-intentioned as they are. He's not going to take them and love them and make them his child and not transform them. Because he cannot look upon that which is evil. You see, we're going to hear again and again, God's great love is not not that we make ourselves good or that we become good enough to be adopted as his children or to be born again, but that God pours out his love upon us to make us his children. And that very idea of him making us his children has a transforming impact. So much so that we can say, and John says, the Holy Spirit says, that anybody who does not practice righteousness is not of God. The one who does practice righteousness is of God. Now, we must understand, John's looking looking beyond the surface here. This is not just like, well, he looks like a good person on the outside. He, you know, He's taking care of things. We're not talking about the person who merely looks good. Our, our society... Uh, though there are many evil people, has a lot of people that are, that are genuine good citizens for the most part. They, they do their duty. That's why our nation functions the way it did. Our founding fathers knew that without 95% of the people obeying the law, it, it would be utter chaos. You could, the police would not have enough people to enforce other laws if, if the majority weren't obeying. But we're But not talking about mere external formalism. And we're not talking about generally good. We're talking about righteous. When it says God's righteous, totally righteous. And and like the analogy with with God being light and darkness, how, how there's no darkness within God at all. He can't have fellowship with darkness. God cannot have fellowship with unrighteousness at all. So those who fellowship with God must be righteous like he is. God is so righteous that even the great prophet Moses was not permitted to see God's face. In Exodus thirty three twenty, 20, we read that God tells Moses this, You cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. Though Moses was a holy man, he was not perfect. And if we are not perfect, we cannot see God. We cannot have fellowship with directly with him. In an unmediated sense, no man can see the full radiance of God's glory and experience unmediated fellowship with God because he is totally human, sorry, totally holy, and man is not, not even someone like Moses. This is what caused the great prophet Isaiah to declare doom upon himself in Isaiah chapter 6. He says, Woe is me! For why? For I have beheld his glory, glory of that of the only begotten, of the throne of God. And with this idea that we, we can't see God in our in our unredeemed, our unglorified state, even the Apostle Paul agrees in first Timothy chapter six, verse fifteen, he describes God this way He says, Blessed the only that He is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. So this unapproachable God isn't just the God of the Old Testament. He's the God of the New Testament, one and the same. But lest you think the apostle has gone off track and the the prophets too, Jesus said something very similar. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, Jesus says, For unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now with that phrase, we we commonly understand the Pharisees and Sadducees as great hypocrites and kind of cast them aside as um, great sinners. But we must understand why does Jesus use them as an argument? He uses them as an argument because their outward righteousness looked perfect to everybody around them. They were the leaders. Now, Jesus knew that their hearts weren't converted. that They were simply whitewashed tombs. And so we know that because Scripture tells us that. But the people of Jesus' day didn't know that. And the reason Jesus uses them as an argument for righteousness is to call people to plead out for Him. Because the response should be, Well, if my righteousness has to exceed that of the Pharisees and Sadducees, I'm doomed. I'm without hope. I'll never get there. And that should bring us to a place of looking to God for help, looking for the Messiah. That realize that we cannot do this on our own. The kind of righteousness we need is not the kind that you and I can do on our own. We just cannot. You say our righteousness that comes from within us, is like filthy rags. Isaiah 64, 6 tells us, For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and our righteous deeds, the things that we cherish, the things we think are valuable to God, you know how he sees them before we come to know Christ? All our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. A filthy garment. And the language there is very vivid. Bloody garment. right? Nothing to do with it. Raunchy. Stinky unclean, and he adds there, all of us wither like a leaf, our iniquities are like the wind, take us away, take us away in judgment. If we had just one sin, God would be just in judging us, but none of us have just one sin, we're born sinners, and we sin daily, even, even as, even as uh, believers, we still struggle with sin, so the righteousness that we need to have fellowship with God doesn't come From inside us. You cannot look inside you to find the light. That's darkness. The world labels it as light, but it's darkness. The righteousness we need comes from the true light. It is is an alien righteousness. It is a foreign righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. The the apostle Paul says that we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's, There's none of us that qualify to speak with God and fellowship with God on our own. We're all disqualified. And so, so all of this goes into the idea of John's going to develop later of, of God's righteousness and how we need to be righteous. Those who have fellowship with him will be righteous. And those who practice sin are not in fellowship with God. This is the, this is the idea he's going to develop further. But he wants us to see this great love, and to understand that great love, and to understand why John wells up within him with this great spring of emotion, we must contemplate God's great gift, how how he is utterly righteous, we are utterly sinful, so how are we going to know him By by this righteousness that is so foreign to us that he supplies Here's where we need to understand the source of righteousness. Again, it's not within us. Nicodemus, and it's not in things that we do. Jesus told Nicodemus in in John 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Nicodemus, we know, was, was like one of the teachers, if not the teacher of Israel, as Jesus calls him that. He, he's talking about being born again. Jesus says, how do you, the teacher of Israel, not know about being born again? So Nicodemus's outward life was one of, uh, you would look at him and it might be near perfection. Now, nobody's perfect, but it would be near that, externally, obeying the law. He was one of the leaders, one of the teachers. And yet Jesus doesn't tell him to, to, to become perfect or to obey more. He's saying, you must be born again. And that's not something that Nicodemus could like go do himself. When Jesus says one must be born again to see the kingdom of heaven, that's a different language, but the same idea that John is saying that you must have the righteousness of God to have fellowship with him. A transformation has to, be, has to take place. How is one born again? We want to be very clear here. The answer is found in passages like the well-known passage of John chapter three verse sixteen, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now, notice the word "being born again" isn't in that, but the con- that's the context that He's He's talking about. Sometimes we take John three sixteen and, and put it up on billboards, and that's great. But remember the context. The context is about you must be born again. How you, are you born again? You believe. It's not something you can do. You have to trust God to do it. But in order to have eternal life, God will grant it. So it is a promise that whoever believes will be granted in, in Christ will be granted, eternal life will be granted this new birth. The, this truth about being born again is, is summarized and encapsulated in, in the very beginning of John's gospel in John chapter one verses 11 to 13. Where, where John tells us this, speaking of Jesus. He came to his own, to those who were his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received them, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. See, the idea of, of being born again with belief, and verse 13 adds this, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So to be born again is not something you can do. It's not a recipe. You can't do it. You've got to rely upon, by faith in Jesus Christ, on God to do this. There is this, this unbreakable connection between true righteousness and being born again. And that is the reason John, the Apostle John can so confidently state in, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 29, that when you when you see someone... If it, 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 someone who's practicing righteousness, you know that that person has been born of him. It's an unmistakable connection. If, if one does not practice righteousness, one is not saved. John is very clear about that. Our society doesn't like that. Modern church doesn't like that. But that's the way that John presents it, black and white. It's meant to hit us in the face for a reason, not to hurt us, but to help us think rightly and to help us think things from, to see things from a true perspective and to see things from God's perspective. Beloved, our hope of righteousness is based solely upon the wondrous love of God. And, and, and with the idea that God is righteous and we are hopelessly unrighteous and that our only chance of being righteous is being born again. Is with that background that we hit verse 1 of chapter 3 where John begins with these words, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us. Now, the word see there is, is a command. So if you're looking for what does John want us to do, that's it. Right? See. See what? The word see is, is a command which calls us to contemplate and perceive the grand and glorious love of God. You know, I, I, I hear... Um, that people want more application. I want to know better how to apply a sermon, and I'm working to try to do that so you can pray for me in that regard. But don't miss the application. Here's the command. Contemplate the wonder and greatness of God. That's what he wants you to do with this. That's why we looked at kind of the bad news and what God has done, because you can't appreciate the great love of God if you don't understand what he's taken us from and what he's done. As one commentator put it, John is calling for immediate actions. Look at once at the kind of love. The word bristles with urgency and excitement. And all the more when followed by the phrase, how great a love. So you see the word how great? It's a a phrase that comes from one word. Uh, The Greek word commonly expresses amazement and wonder at the at the nature of the item being described it's something that they see and just you're just like oh wow isn't that glorious is kind of the response we get a glimpse of the meaning of this word on the lips of one of Jesus' disciples as the disciples walked in the shadows of of the temple in Jerusalem in mark chapter 1 verse uh, 1 sorry chapter thir- 13 verse 1 we read this as he was going out of the temple one of his disciples said to him teacher behold what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings and on that occasion Jesus goes on to tell them that it's all going to be destroyed although they but 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 get the the idea here is is that they looked at the temple and they said how wonderful these stones? It's basically, what kind of stones? Or how wonderful are these stones? How, how grand is this building? Is this temple? Doesn't this declare the glory of God? So literally there, the wording is, what stones, what buildings? But it's, a, it's the same eye. It's the same idea. How wonderful are the stones? How wonderful are the buildings? Now, it seems, if we go back to 1 John 3, 1, where he says, how great, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us. The, the word how great is, is, uh, seems a bit lax, seems a bit tame. It seems that all the translations fall a bit short here. The New American Standard Bible, which I preach from, says how great. Right? Um, the ESV says what kind. The New King James Version says what manner. And the New English Standard, uh, New, New English Translation says, what sort? I think they all fall short. If, if they can translate that word, wondrous, in Mark chapter 13, verse 1, when talking about the, temp, the stones in the temple, why can't we translate that word, how wondrous, how wonderful the love is that God has given us? And, and so that, that's the idea that I want you to understand, that John wants you to see. Whether you talk about it as what kind, what manner, what sort, or how great, understand that it's a marvelous love. It's an all-consuming love. We talked about the deep, deep love of Jesus and how it's like a mighty ocean that just overwhelms us and overflows us. That's the idea. just comes upon us. And notice how great is pointing to the object, not of stones or of temple, but of love. And the word love here is the familiar term, Agape. It's the term agape. As Vine's uh, expository commentary notes, this is the love of God uh, that exercises the divine will in in a deliberate choice made without assignable cause, save that which lies in the nature of God himself, unquote. In other words, God, this this is the love that God pours upon us, not because we're lovable or sweet or we can do something for him, or that we can win lots of other people to know Christ, and we can be great evangelists. That's not why God saves us. God saves us simply because he poured out his love upon us. As as Donald Burdick describes this term agape, he says this, it is not a strongly emotional word. Instead, it describes an attitude in which the intellect and will are predominant. This love, originating with God, ever seeks the true welfare of those being loved. It is amazing indeed when we remember the personal destitution of those he loves. God, God's love is a love that works in visible, transforming results in the lives of his recipients. God demonstrates his love and puts it in action to transform us. Now, to help us better understand the love of God, I, I want us to turn for a moment uh, to the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 5. So I'm going to ask you to turn to Romans chapter 5. In Romans chapter 5, we read of the results of our justification with, with Christ. Paul is laying out a very uh, theological and uh, ground of our justification. But he deals here with the love of God. So I'm going to pick it up and reading, just get the context in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Paul says there, well, let me just begin in verse 25. He who was delivered over because of our transgressions was raised over because of our justification. Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace, in which we stand, and we exult in, ho- in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that our tribulations tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope, and hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who is given to us. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received the reconciliation. So the overall topic is reconciliation with God. But but notice this, verse 1, that we have been justified by faith, that we have a peace with God through faith, By faith in Jesus Christ, and that that notice also in verse five that the love of God has been poured out within our hearts. You know that the the scriptures' graphic terms here for love are amazing. He's not just talking about well God loves us and leaves us at that. He's saying He poured His love upon us. Right? It's it's the idea of generosity. God's not stingy when He talks about His love. He has given us to the utmost. He has given us his best gift. He has poured out his love within our hearts. He says there through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. But but see where he's going with this. This great love did what? How is it demonstrated? Verse six begins to, to really get to that. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Beloved, don't rush by that statement. While we were helpless. It's, it's not as if, you know, you went, you know, 99 miles of the 100 miles God requires. Beloved, that is not what we're talking about. You were helpless. If salvation is at the 100-mile mark, you did nothing. You didn't even make the first mile. You were helpless. I was helpless. There's nothing that we could do to to earn God's love and to say, oh yeah, they're worth saving. We were helpless. And he adds to this, God demonstrates his own love and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And and he builds the argument on this. Look at verse 7. He says, For one will hardly die for a righteous man, so he says, yeah, that's not going to happen very often, but it does happen, and he acknowledges that. He says, though perhaps for the, for the good man, someone would dare even to die. That happens in our, in our day and age, this happens every day where someone decides to die for someone else for their good. On May 1st of this year, it's a few days ago, what should have been just a normal day of classes and studies For students, shots rang out on the campus of UNC Charlotte. And at the end of the tragedy, two were dead, four were wounded. But as the Charlotte observer noted, the toll could have been much worse. A 21-year-old ROTC student named Riley Howe tackled the shooter and saved other lives. The athletically built young man was likely the second person shot, second person killed. But took the assailant off his feet and gave the police the time they needed to respond, so that others would not be harmed. Howell's mother told NBC's Today Show that she was proud of her son's heroic actions. She said, "This while kids were running, were running one way. Our son turned and ran towards the shooter. He was in the room when when something like that. Sorry, if he was in the room when something like that was happening." And he had turned away. He wouldn't have been able to live with himself. There's a young man. I do not know whether he was saved. But there's a young man who understood what it means to love. And what, understood what it meant to hate. By turning away from the very thing he was called to do. What causes a young man, 21 years old, to run into the face of bullets. To sacrifice himself to save others. The Bible puts a label on it. It's called love. It's called love. Jesus said, Greater love has no one than this, than one lay down his life for his friends. That young man laid his life down for his friends. We don't know whether how well he knew them, but he sacrificed his life for others. Now, how would you feel if this was your son who had died to save others? There's, there's soulless at least for this mother, though she cannot have her son back. There's solace that he died saving others. He died other, helping others who, in, a, in the human sense, were, were innocent. They, they hadn't done anything against the shooter. They're they not worthy of death from, from a human perspective. They're not good from God's perspective, but from the human perspective, they were not doing anything worthy of death. Many a parent has had to take solace in the fact that their son or daughter has died in the process of saving others. Whether these were innocent people being attacked or fellow soldiers, marines, or sailors. We read about these heroes in, in many of the wars of our past. These sons and daughters were willing to die to save others. They willingly gave it up. You, you hear of the, of the man who, who will dive on the grenade to save his team to save his brothers. These are the firefighters and the police who ran into the buildings on 9 11 when everything within them said, Get out of here and run the other way. They did what Romans 5 7 tells us. They were willing to die for a good man. But think about what God did. God didn't die. God didn't send his son to die for a good man. He sent his son to die for an enemy. Unless you think I'm using too strong a language, let your eyes glance down at verse um, 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled shall we be saved by his life. So God... Sent his son to die for us, not because we're good. We weren't worthy of being saved. We were enemies. We were helpless. We were unrighteous. We were the filthy rags. And the fact that Christ had died for us, though we be so awful, is the reason that John Hits the, the whole topic of being born again as a child of God with enormous excitement. So allow ourselves to go back to 1 John. 1 John 3 and read it afresh. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us. And he gives us a reason that we be called the children of God. And before we talk about the children of God, look, at it. He, look how he describes this. John doesn't say that God, what a great love God has loved us with. He's saying, what a great love God has given to us. Right? There's greater emphasis brought by saying that he's given us his love than just saying he loves us. It's a gift. Do you think God is going to give a gift and then, ah, sorry, you're not worthy of it, give it back? You weren't worthy of it to begin with. Because there's no reason for God giving you the gift, there's no reason for him to take it back. And God who knows all things is wiser than that. He never gives a gift that he has to later take back. He has given us a gift, this great and precious gift of being His called his children. And, and this gift, the way that John words it, shows that it's a, it's a, it's a once for all. It's, it's a gift not earned. It, it's a gift that is given that won't be taken back. And notice he says here in, in verse 1 that he has bestowed it or given it on us. You know, it's not to us, it's on us. And the idea is the same language of like what Paul used in, in Romans 5, how he poured out his love upon us. He has given his love. He has bestowed on us. He has given us his great gift. This great gift of what? That we would be called children of God. Children of God. And, and again, this is, this is the reason he's going here. Remember the past, verse 29, where we're coming from is that God is righteous and that only those who have, are righteous have fellowship with him. We're, we're going to be, in, in verse 4, we're going to start talking about sin and the practice of sin. And that anyone who sins doesn't have fellowship with God. And in between that is these, these three verses that celebrate the love of God and the hope of righteousness within the believer. So this is what, what causes John to really well up with joy joy. And to declare that we are called the children of God. That, that's God's label. That's not our label. That we should be called children of God. Who calls us that? God does. It's his diagnosis. It's his work that is done. And look, we are children of God. And he, he, he gives us this, this exclamation and he says, we are, and or adding the word, such and such we are. We're not just called children of God. It's not that we just like have a label and are really something else. We're not, we're not masquerading as one thing, but really inwardly we're something else. No, that's, that's, that's Satan's scheme. You know, Satan is the one who dresses like an angel of light, but inwardly it is a ravenous wolf. No, those who are... The children of God, who are called the children of God, are genuinely the children of God. If, if God gives us that title, then we are genuinely His children. And again, beloved, keep in mind the, the, the metaphor that he's using. He's talking about children coming from a father. The, the whole idea is that we're born of God. And someone who is born of another person shares their characteristics. Right? We're talking about, he, John is using here, the Holy Spirit is using an analogy of biology to help us learn something about spiritual life. When you're saying that we're born of God, we're talking about a spiritual transformation, how God implants His Spirit working through His Word to produce a certain characteristic in our lives. And that characteristic is ultimately like Christ, but manifested in this, is, this area. He's talking about righteousness. So we are genuinely the children of God. And we could add that, relate that Paul says in Galatians four six that, that, uh, that God has sent forth His Spirit, the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. So there is this subjective element of the Holy Spirit working within us. But here we're talking, John is relaying more about the objective sense of us being children of God. So our hope of righteousness is based on so solely wonder, God's wondrous love that He would call us the ch- His children, that we would be called the children of God. And, and verse 1 ends with this, uh, this connection. And, and, and you, might, you might struggle to know how this relates. But he says, For this reason the world does not know us because it did not know Him. What is John doing with this? He's saying our hope of righteousness is not based on the world's acceptance of us our hope of being the children of god our hope of righteousness and of and of the culmination of the, of being a child of god is not based on the world's acceptance of us so when he says for this reason it ties the thought of being a child of god with the thought of rejection by the world in this sense who who what does the world mean in this particular context in this particular context the world is referring to those who are unregenerate, who belong to the world system that is opposed to God. Now, now why is he bringing this up? Because later on in this chapter, he's going to talk, he's going to divide the entire sea of humanity into two, two halves. There's the children of God and the children of the devil. There's no in between. There's nothing in between. So all people who have ever lived, those who are alive today, those who are here in this room, you are either a child of God or you are a child of the devil. So he is bringing this up at this point to say that the world, and he says the world, he's talking about the children of the devil. They're not going to know us. They're not going to know what to make of us. In fact, they're going to generally hate us and disdain us. Yet the idea there of not knowing us is related to the word of understanding. Um, Donald Burdick in his commentary says this, To know a person is not only to recognize him, but to understand him, to appreciate him, and to be in a friendly relationship with him. Such knowledge is experiential, growing out of personal contact. Because the deep gulf between the children of God and the world, such relationship uh, not sorry, not such a relationship is not possible. Such a relationship is not possible. The world cannot truly recognize us. The world cannot truly identify us. If, if the world truly is enamored with us, something's wrong. It's actually a, a barometer. It's a barometer to how well and how accurate. We are. We don't want to be disdained by the world. We're not looking to be abused by the world. We're not looking for abuse or persecution. But if the world who hates God has no problem with our life and our message and us serving Christ, something is very seriously wrong with our spiritual life. Why? Because John says, he says here at the end, it does not know us because it did not know God. Him. I, I believe this passage is pointing us to the, the coming of Christ and when it, where Christ came as the light of the world. This is summarized for us in 1 John 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. In, in general, the, the light, uh, the darkness, did not want to have anything to do with the light The world who was created by Jesus did not recognize its creator and and in fact rejected him and crucified him. So beloved, know that our hope of righteousness is in the Father's wondrous love. Reflect upon that. Meditate upon that. And don't ever let yourself get complacent. It's it's really easy when we hear these truths to kind of grow complacent and, and the word, the, the truth of God's love sometimes can can lose its its luster. Not because it's changed, but because we've allowed our minds to go dull, to grow dull. We've allowed ourselves to not think rightly about ourselves and our lost condition and what God has done. But this morning may this be a, 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 just a rally point for those of you who already know this truth and for those that perhaps don't know Christ in this way and are not children of God. Let it be a call for you to, to seek the Lord because the Lord says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You see, in John's battling with, the, with, with those who attack the church and those who we read about in, in chapter 2 who left the church, um, they thought that they had a special relationship. They, they said they were trying to teach that you had to be specially indoctrinated to, become truly, true, to truly have fellowship with God. But what John is saying is that all who believe, all who believe, all who call upon him shall be saved. You don't have to have special knowledge or have some special indoctrination. No, beloved, all who call upon the name of the Lord. It, as John relates in John three sixteen, that, that God so loved the world that whoever believes in him shall have eternal life. And with that, eternal life shall be called a child of God. And don't be indifferent to the love of God. Embrace him and, and allow your soul to be stirred up to greater heights of just um, not emotionalism, but we can't be can't be dead either to these things god has poured out his love in such a great way how can we not respond to it and live our lives for him let's pray together our lord and our god we uh, just thank you for your great and wondrous love thank you for pouring out your love for us thank you for dying for us for as we have seen in the Scriptures, there's just, there was nothing good within us that would cause you to love us. But you have loved us because you have chosen us. You have chosen to make us your trophies of grace and love. And as trophies of grace and love, Lord, make us to be your mouthpieces. Make us to be faithful evangelists. Make us to be uh, those who walk in righteousness and holiness Re- those who repent of our sins when we do sin, the ones who are looking constantly towards the completion of our redemption, as we'll see in the next week in the verses that we look at of, of just the assurance of perfect righteousness and of becoming like our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whom we believe and whom we follow and whom Lord, we celebrate. It's your name we pray. Amen.